Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> In a moment here, um, I'll ask you to give your attention to uh, the screen. I'm doing something today that um, <clears throat> is a little out of the usual. Um, <clears throat> but I want us to think about the pathway, the highway, um, the road to heaven as both a destination we have to be clear on and a map to show the way. There's <clears throat> God has a destination for us. Today I want to look at not heaven, um, but the destination he has for us before we die in this life. And then a map on how to get there. A map really doesn't do you any good unless you have a destination. On the other hand, if you have a destination but no map, you're not a whole lot better off. <clears throat> I've been to Nampa, Idaho a number of times over the last seven years or so where my son teaches, college professor. But it's been a few years since I've driven there. And so a couple of weeks ago, we went there. We went on nothing but interstates. I was, we were hauling a bunch of his stuff, plus towing his Jeep that um, it's worth about $2,500 to $3,000. And my true estimate is I probably have 15000 in it, okay? Um, we bought it in high school, completely renovated it, and then, of course, replaced parts on it up till then we stored it for probably six or seven years with hard, hardly driving it at all. But at any rate, we headed out to Nampa. Well... We forgot a map, weren't looking very hard for a map, didn't think we, I, I told Liz, wait, wait, I, I know. I've been there before. And the, the road, 80, 84 especially, from Oregon to wherever, I've been on a million times. So, um, we go to Butte. <clears throat> stay overnight there, make, take it easy, drive it slow, it's heavy load. And we get up the next morning and, and you know, we head to Nampa. Well, we get to Pocatello, Idaho. There's all kinds of construction and it's kind of a mess. And um, as we're, you know, in a line of traffic and there's trucks and everything else, I notice a little sign, I-86. And a foggy memory, you know, I thought, oh, am I supposed to take I-86? Because it angles across and hits 84 outside of Boise. I don't want to stay on 15 South clear to Salt Lake. Except that I did. Because 
I should have taken 86. But I knew. So we ended up going almost to Salt Lake City on 15 to hit 84 to then turn around and go all the way back north. And it, we, we added about three and a half to four hours to our trip. I had a destination, but I, had, I didn't have a map. So I took wrong turns. I missed turns. We have to have both. We have to have clearly where we headed. What does God want of us in this life, in the Christian journey? And then how, what's the map look like to get us there? Now, the reason I say that is I believe the Bible is abundantly clear, Old and New Testament, filled with personal testimonies, filled with physical illustrations of spiritual truths. Simply, our hearts are fallen, we're darkened, we love ourselves more than we love anything else, and we are hostile to God. The Bible says, Paul said it as plain as can be, that the, the carnal mind, the sinful mind, is hostile to God, is not subject to his laws, and never will be. That's our condition. Now, God, of course, has no intention of leaving us there. He came from heaven to die on the cross for one thing. That is to renovate, reverse, transform this fallen heart into a heart that, and he told us exactly what the destination is. He was asked by some Pharisees who were picking at him, and he said, to the question that was put to him, and I'll read it here from Mark's Gospel. It's in other Gospels too. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. Recognizing that Jesus had answered them well, he asked him, what commandment is the greatest of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, this is out of Deuteronomy, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's God's destination to bring us from fallen, darkened, sinful, our backs turned to God, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's his destination for every single one of us. Now how does he get us there? There's, there's process 
interrupted by instantaneous transformations. It's everywhere in Scripture. There is a progress of light. It's called progressive revelation. We gradually understand more and more about God until we begin to also understand more and more about us and our relationship to Him. And we see that it's out of joint. And then God calls us to repentance, conversion, forgiveness of sins. The New Testament labels it the new birth. But we're not done. We grow in grace and strength and knowledge and discernment and we deepen our roots spiritually to a point. And then the Bible is packed with the illustration that in every person's life after conversion and the new birth there is a second crossroads why in the road where there is a total surrender utter submission to God and God alone following that he deepens then our love of God with our whole hearts I cannot love God with my whole heart and love my neighbor as myself as long as I'm in the way Period. I can't. Because one of the best simple definitions of the sinful bent that we're born with is excessive love of self. It's a good simple definition. Because I excessively love me, therefore I love my desires, wishes, directions, more than God's. So I disobey Him. Since I love myself excessively, I trust my own judgment versus God's judgment. I know better than God. He says don't do that. Well, I know I can. I want to. Besides, what right does He have to hem me in and dictate to me? We excessively love ourselves. God's remedy for dealing with sin, which is twofold, the deeds we privately commit willingly and the pollution we're born with, they are not dealt with once and all at the same time. The life of rebellion has got to come to an end and I turn and I repent from that. I will discover most of the time we don't have any idea of what still lurks in our heart. And we find that we are, like James described it, double-minded. Now God will not leave us there, thankfully. He not only orders us to move on beyond that, but He provides a remedy for it. All through Scripture, Old and New Testament, there are virtually innumerable illustrations of people who had two crisis moments in their lives. I can't help it 
that today there are those who deny that. There's nothing I can do about it. But you've got to blot out about 98% of the Bible to get there. The first time God appeared, Abram said, Abraham believed God. And God counted it to him for righteousness. He began to sacrifice to God, to follow God. And a number of years later, still in the book of Genesis, it says God appeared to him and said, Abraham, you walk before me and you be perfect. Don't have a divided heart. Abraham had an, made another sacrifice to God. It's a very, very detailed. He tells how he made a sacrifice, different animals, and how he laid them out and stood looking foolish, waiting for God to make a covenant with him. Because God said, you do this, I'll make a covenant with you. And he stood there until it got dark. Birds came to eat the sacrifice. He drove them away, just stood there by himself. In the black darkness of night, it said there was a smoking lantern, a pillar of fire that settled down and walked between the pieces of the animals. You, you cut them in half and laid them, and then you walked from one end, and I walked from the next. We met in between those sacrifices and shook hands or whatever, but that sacrifice was solemnizing the covenant we're making. And it was a covenant of fire. Jacob, grandson of Abraham, found God, met God at Bethel, which means house of God. And he said, this is the gate of heaven. And, I, and God's here, and I never knew it before. Jacob was a rat. And God finally got to him, and he repented, and he said, Lord, I'll serve you. But Jacob still had a wobble in his walk. He was a heel grasper, a deceiver, sort of a crook, a bit of a shyster. And 20 years later, returning from the land north, back home, at the river Jabok, it said an angel appeared and wrestled with him. And he, he wrestled back. That was still in his heart. He wrestled back. And so God finally hit him on the hip and put his hip out of joint. That doesn't feel very good as far as I've read. Then his attitude changed. That was an attitude adjustment. And he clung on to God and he said, the angel, he said, bless me before you go. Please bless me. The angel then, God, asked him, tell me what your name is. He said, it's Jacob. I'm a shyster. I'm a heel grasper. I come along behind and trip people. Why? To carry out his own schemes. 
stole the, the birthright, the right from his older twin brother Esau to a double portion of the inheritance. If there were two boys and the oldest, the oldest got two-thirds, the youngest got one-third. Well, Jacob was out for who? Oh, he, he loved Esau and wanted... No, he was out for Jacob. And so he snookered his brother Esau into selling him his birthright. So now Jacob was coming in for the two-thirds. That was a picture of Jacob's life. And so God said, what's your name? It's Jacob. Instantly, God said, we won't call you Jacob anymore. Your name's going to be Israel. As a prince with God, you have prevailed. You've won what you wanted. But at the price of acknowledging what's in your heart. Ninety years later, at least, on his deathbed, Jacob had a long life. He lived 147 years, which he was not too happy with. He said, it's a lot less than my father's lived. But nevertheless, at the end of 147 years, there should be quite a few memories. He only singled out two. Laid his hands on his grandsons. And he said, the God who met me at Bethel and the angel at Peniel. Bethel means house of God. Peniel means face of God. Said the God who met me at Bethel and the angel who wrestled with me and redeemed me from all evil. Bless these lads. Those were the two issues that stood out in his life. The one dealt with him coming in to the house of God because he'd been a sinner. The second dealt with cleansing his heart and getting a new name and a new nature. Israel came out of Egypt. Everywhere used as a type of the bondage to sinning. The life of sinning. Hard bondage. God divided the Red Sea and brought them out and meant to within about 14 months move them in to the promised land. They backed up and so he made them wander for 40 years but brought them back and brought them into the promised land and they went through the Jordan River which was divided and those two monumental in the life of the people of Israel typified coming into God's ownership and then purging my heart of the what the old hymn says prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love I can't take all my time here God's goal announced by Moses in Deuteronomy was love God with all your heart, your neighbors, yourself. Typifies, by the way, it fulfills the Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the first four. Love your neighbors, yourself is the second six. That's God's destination for us. Now, I want to make it clear that God needs no 
verification. Okay? Um, we sometimes think God needs verification in this sense. Uh, do we trot out? Do we trot out some um, undrafted NFL walk-on who got washed out um, and was let go and cut from the team and never made it? And he's now selling cars. Do we trot him out and say, look, this famous guy, he loves Jesus. That somehow gives prestige to Jesus. Jesus needs to be propped up by famous people that love him. We've got that kind of an attitude. We don't ever trot out a little nobody. He loves God with all of his heart. He's the janitor or wherever. No, no. We've got to bolster Jesus because, as A.W. Tozer says, he can't stand on his own strength. He's got to have famous people endorse him. I'm not doing that here today. But there is a researcher that has been around just shy of 40 years. Some of us probably have heard his name, George Barna. And he has spent 40 years detailed researching the church world, pastors, how long they stay, the trouble they get into, the discouragement they get into, the people in the pews, how fervent they are. He's, he's the number one researcher in our country for the state of Christianity in America. I, I, I won't you know, be too much of a wet blanket. The picture's not good. And it's getting worse. But God's still alive. Okay? But what Barna did a number of years ago, and he ended up, he, he just put the number at tens of thousands of people who had some relation to church and to whatever degree claimed some allegiance to Christian. That didn't mean they were. And he understood that. But he at least took the sample of people that professed some kind of dim belief and tracked the pattern that they went through in over decades. What then did you have as a destination? And what was the map that helped you get there? He found, first of all, the vast majority of people, even those in church who professed some religion, had very little idea of where they were going. What did God really want out of them? Did he want them to love him with their, their whole hearts and their neighbors or stuff? Was that his destination? Well, they weren't real sure. And number two, how did he get there? They had no idea. So, Tracking this completely verifies what we see in Scripture. What we see, the research that he did was revealed in a book printed about 10 years ago called Maximum Faith. 
but he tracks people's individual spiritual experience. Where are they today? Where were they then? What are the, and he didn't call it steps. It's interesting. He had 10 stops in the Christian journey. Because a lot of people never completed. They stop along the way. Now we'll put up um, on the screen this chart that he came up with that I want to refer to today. And I, I don't see it back here, so I hope, yeah, okay. Then I have copies of this that the ushers will have at the doors. I want us to take this home with us, and I want us to look at it and honestly say, where am I on this spectrum? Where am I at? He points out that, that, that before we ever know anything, we're looking probably number one is basically accountability, age of accountability. We have no concept of sin at all. But it isn't too long until we become aware of wrongdoing, but we're pretty indifferent to it. And this can also be for adults, adolescents, whatever. If we progress and listen to God's voice and not resist and run from Him and stiff-arm Him, He will lead us to the third stop, which is concerned about the implications of sin. Recognition. I'm in the disfavor of God. We call it in Scripture, conviction. And the word conviction literally means forehead. God's a confronter. And he's kind, he's good, he's faithful, he loves us with all of his heart, but he's very straightforward. He never beats around the bush. <clears throat> if those first three progresses, those places we allow God to work, it will lead us to step four, which is when we are converted, when we confess our sins, when we ask Jesus to forgive us and to come into our hearts, and all things, Paul said to the Corinthians, become new. Our eyesight clears up, our behavior straightens up. Our understanding begins to deepen. We are aware of God's presence in a brand new way. And the purpose of our life changes. This is what Jesus said <clears throat> when he said, we've got to hear this. Except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You'll never make it to heaven. You'd understand nothing about God. You'd live your whole life blind in a darkened world. And Jesus said, the blind don't even know what they're stumbling over spiritually. Our whole world is engulfed in that kind of spiritual darkness. 
and we think we see the remedies to the messes in this world, there's only one remedy. It's God. It's His Son, Jesus Christ. Blood washing away our sins. And His Spirit entering our hearts and making us alive. Whereas we've been spiritually dead. You've got to have that. You may not know, you may not know the date. <clears throat> you may not know the hour of the day. But you remember the event because you were there. It's clear. You also know if at some point you slid back. You walked away from some truth that was too hard. Some new demand the Lord seemed to make on you. Now I had the privilege of knowing a lot of religion. And when I finally got right with God, I never felt so good. I, my heart was at peace. Blue sky. I, I, I was radically renovated. But there were some early points, especially early points, that I could have turned back. <clears throat> I'd done some things, falsified some things, um, that carried a penalty. Uh, one involved the government, and it involved $5,000 fine or 10, 000, 10 years in jail, or both. And God just poked me within three or four, maybe it was a week or so later. You got to write a letter and you got to own up to that. Well, my thought is, of course, I see myself, you know, looking through the bars and <clears throat> being out in the exercise yard. That was a pretty hard price. And my thought was, oh man, alive. God has a habit of doing that to us. He'll spring a cost on you that you thought, man, I didn't think about that. I didn't bargain for this. But I knew you have to obey God. So I wrote the letter. That was in January of 1970. Most of you weren't even alive then. Fire had only just been discovered. I've yet to hear back a reply to that letter. Okay? I don't expect to hear one. The lies the devil told me that this would cost me were lies. But you've got to mind God. We've got to keep moving forward into whatever... He requires of us. And with it comes His favor, His blessing, His help, His comfort, His peace. There's nothing like it. We have to have that. Once that day occurs, normal converted people move to stop five. Where we get involved in church, we attend, 
we read our Bibles, we go to Bible studies, we volunteer and so forth, <clears throat> and we get active. The sad truth <clears throat> is, you'll notice, 89% of the churched people and somewhat professing people stop at five. Eighty-nine percent. Stop at five. They're nominally involved. God is not the center of their lives. He's not the first thought in their hearts. He's not the ultimate being in their life. His will is not their ultimate purpose. God is sort of a helpful neighbor that you call on when you get in some kind of a jam. Uh, otherwise, if God just keeps your kids well and keeps you employed and takes pretty good care of you, uh, then thanks a lot. Uh, I'll be talking to you. That is the state of the American church. But you might think, boy, we're... Maybe we're worse than ever. The whole New Testament and the Old Testament is filled with that. Joshua, dying, stands up and says, I am going the way of all the earth. I'm going to die. He was 110 years old. And he led Israel into the promised land. And he was 80. Okay? So 30 years 30 years after he led Israel into the promised land, there were 12 tribes. Seven of the tribes of Israel, after 30 years of being in the promised land, which the Lord said, grow crops, occupy the whole thing. It's a, one, it's a land of milk and honey. Seven of the 12 tribes, still after 30 years, were squatting on other tribes' land, had not gone into their realm. As soon as they got in, they plotted out the entire land of Canaan. The tribes of Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh are here. Judah's here. Benjamin's there. Go at it. Go occupy it. Seven of them, seven tribes out of twelve, still were just kind of sitting around in their tents and they were like a lot of people. Are you pressing on with God? Well, I'm praying about it. And I, do you read your Bible and pray and hunger and thirst after God? Well, I, I'm not much of a reader, you know. So Joshua said to them, he said, how long are you slack to go up and notice these words? And the word possess means take. Doesn't mean just hold your hand out. It means take it. How long are you slack to possess the land the Lord your God has already given you? All I have to do is ask and believe God's already made provision. 
for whatever I need to be everything He wants me to be and to be at the destination He provides for me. Love God with your whole heart. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? He said, you're babies in Christ. And years later he says, you're still babies. He said, you are still carnal. And you're acting like babies. When are you going to move up, he said, go on to perfection, meaning wholeness, completeness, finished work in your heart. So what Barna discovered about the United States 10 years ago that's only gotten worse is nothing new. This is tragic. Stop six, he found, is usually some years, as many as 15 years later in the life of somebody who was at stop four, got converted, and sometimes it was a decade or so longer if they stayed nominally with it, trying to do their best. They got into a period of spiritual discontent. Unhappy with where they were. Troubled in their heart that they weren't deeper. That they were walking in circles. They camped within sight of last night's campfire. Spiritually. Flopping at the same areas. Repeating the same issues. Not making headway. That's biblical. We see it. We see it with the disciples. We see it with all the churches Paul wrote to. Finally, that leads to those who want to break through that and recognize, Lord, well, again, I'll repeat that hymn, that recognize there's something in my heart prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Now, I don't have time, obviously, to try to prove that, except it's amazing to read. And I probably mentioned this book, and I have copies of it if you want one. They Found the Secret is the name of the book. And it is, it is the life stories, spiritual biographies, Catholics, Lutherans, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Congregationalists, didn't matter. And it's written by a past president of Moody Bible Institute, which he, he records an experience in his own heart that doctrinally, that school doesn't believe in. But he got it. He said he died. He died to him. He died to self. Barna puts it here at stop seven. Is die to sin. Not robbing banks and selling drugs to little kids. That's quit when you got saved. But there's still... Pride, unbelief, slowness, 
to obey in here. There's an undertow. And Barna puts it this way, we have to die. And by the way, Barnum was raised a Catholic. I don't know what denomination he's in now. He's an evangelical Christian, but I don't know. Nevertheless, he's reporting. He's not trying to go into doctrine. He's not trying to prove, he proves some doctrine over another. This sanctification is real or it isn't. He, this, is, this is what I found. Talking to tens of thousands of people. They died to sin, self, and society. You have to get to where this world and its pressures and it's the age we're in. I'm done with it. I care about one person's opinion. God. Seven percent, he said, of all that he interviewed testified to that. To being at that place and only 2% pushed on through submitting utterly to God to love Him with their whole heart, their neighbors, their self. I can't fulfill His command to love my neighbor unless I first love Him. This, to me, is, well, I don't have a word. It's obviously deeply troubling. But again, it isn't anything new. God's faced this since Adam and Eve. And He has been at the business of calling us higher. That's all He does. We really can't undertake well, I'm going to do this journey. No. God is the one that draws me, calls me, aids me, helps me, enlightens me, shows me my heart. He told the Israelites. This speaks of brokenness. He told the Israelites. God did. said, I let you get hungry in the wilderness. I let you get thirsty. Why, because he's mean? No. He said, so that you would know what was in your heart. Now, God didn't need to find out. He already knew. But he said, you need to see your heart. So he allows things to come to us to reveal. Jacob was in dire straits when he wrestled with the angel. He thought he was looking at death from his brother Esau. He'd be dead and stabbed through by a sword in the morning. That'll make a prayer warrior out of you. God allows difficulties to come to us and brings us to a place where we see our heart and we recognize God's all I need. He's all sufficient. Lord, get me out of the way. Crucify this self-love, excessive love of self then I can trust you. I can leave the future with you. Don't fret about it. I'll just let you lead my footsteps. 
And then all of a sudden, we see people not as nuisances or enemies or how can you, who can love the unlovely? Only God and those who let Him so renovate their hearts that He loves the unlovely through us. Every one of you here who've experienced what Peter said, our hearts were purified by faith, you know what I'm talking about. There is an... It isn't that hard to look at that fellow worker or whoever it is, warts and all, and love them and care for them. It's not really me doing it, but you understand it's... God's love that flows through us. That's his destination. That's the map on how to get there. And this is a pattern, like that book that I mentioned. They found the secret. People who came from doctrinal backgrounds who didn't even believe that you could have a pure heart ended up with it. God can overcome all that. So the question then, which stop are we maybe at? What I want you to do, and I, I will try to spy on you, I guess, the ushers will have copies of this. I want you to take one. And I want us to go home in the privacy of our hearts with God. And I want us to just honestly look at this. And this is not, even though it's a man that made it, it's biblical. And everywhere in Scripture are people at these places. And ask God, Lord, where am I at here? Am I making strides toward the ultimate destination? Am I just kind of fooling around back here? And I need, to, I need a couple of good jabs to move. Has the Lord been gently tugging at my heart? Are there things He's talking to me about that I've yet to really respond? Where am I at? We have to know where we're at then we know how to go forward. Let's bow our heads and we'll just dismiss with prayer. <clears throat> and I confidently leave, leave you to God. He will help us know where we're at. In fact, I'll quit with this sentence. Most of us know more clearly where we're at than we might pretend. Okay? We know. God's faithful to talk to us. Father in heaven, this is literally the pattern that shows up from Adam and Eve and all through the scriptures. Generation after generation after generation, you've dealt with the same thing. And Lord, it does bring to mind, Jesus said, 
the pathway that leads to life is narrow and few there be that find it. May we, by the grace of God and your wonderful faithfulness, be among those few who find it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.